Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and good morning to all of you who are tuned in uh, virtually. Really glad you're here. Um, so this week I was uh, listening in on um, kind of a human interest story. It's not going to shock any of you that know me very well that it was on BBC, kind of my go-to news feed, right? So I was listening to this thing on BBC. Um, mostly, again, I, I, I dig BBC because of the global perspective, and, and this one didn't disappoint. So it was about the West African country of Senegal. Uh, I've got some friends that live in Senegal. In fact, this story got me back in contact with them. He's a, a doctor over there uh, in Dakar. Got me talking to him. But the, the feature, the story was about um, this cultural ethos that is just pronounced in Senegal, and it has a word. The word is teranga, and I've got it up here. Teranga is, in fact, that was one of the things I did. I said, can you please say that, send me a voice memo that has that pronunciation because I know I'll butcher it, and he said it a little bit cooler than me, but teranga. Um, but in that little BBC news piece, here's why it caught my attention and, and why I wanted to bring it to you guys Treating strangers like family breeds a culture of giving and sharing while respecting other people's choices. I just, that part especially caught my attention, um, that idea that it's more than just a, a warm culture hospitality. It's more than just, you know, the, the kind of warm treating others well. Kind of, it goes deeper than that. It, it's so pronounced that there's a giving and sharing while respecting other people's um, choices. I went on to read a little bit more about it. Uh, one guy said, Taranga emphasizes generosity of spirit, a sharing of material possessions in all encounters, even to strangers. But he said this, this builds a culture in which there is no other. He goes on to say, by feeling you know, by this give, just generous giving to all, regardless of nationality, religious, or class, get this, a feeling grows that everyone is safe and welcome. So I'm listening to this, and honestly, as I'm listening to it, I'm like, I just want to go there right now. <laughs> like, I just, take me to Senegal. Take me to Teranga. I want to go where there's a place. Is there really a place right now where there's this generosity of spirit and and even when there are differences, there's a kindness and a generosity toward all. If that place exists, I want to go right now, right? That's, that's what was going on in my head. Um, so here's the deal. The reality is there is no perfect place on earth, right? I've been to Senegal. It's not a perfect place, okay? Um, there is no utopia yet. Like we will experience what the Bible describes as that perfect Taronga experience, um, that's not our experience yet. But I'm just saying this, guys. I'm saying in a world that seems right now to be so torn apart and so fractured with such sharp divides everywhere, when you find out that there's a place out there that you can go and escape even for a moment, you guys, even for a moment, to, to, to find a place of peace and charity, a place of family, you know, that breeds this culture of giving and sharing. 
while respecting other people's choices. And here's what I believe, guys. That place is to exist on this planet. And it's called the church. It's called the church. That's where we should long to be and to discover that. So I was thinking about that with, in, in relationship to something Jesus taught. So in, G, in, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that's, that's the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is actually trying to describe what heaven on earth should look like among the community of God's people. And here's what he says in the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 5. He says, man, you're the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp, puts it under a basket... But no, rather on a lampstand, it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What I'm saying is when we really live out this, this kingdom, this culture of teranga, this, this idea of love, guys, we become a city on a hill and, and it's inviting and people want to say, Look, it's dark out here. Hey, what's that? I want to go there where there's some safety. Where there's people that are actually going to take care of me, right? I want to go to that city on a hill. That's, that's what Jesus is beckoning us towards. So we are in our Bibles in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I want you to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where we are today, how the Apostle Paul is going to be drawing the Corinthian church one step closer to that experience. How he's going to help them get from where they're at and the divisions and, and the, you know, um, the, the cultural clash of ideas could be transformed into the kind of place, the kind of church that people would actually say, man, I, I want to be part of that. Something beautiful is going on inside that community of faith. Okay, so he starts off in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols. Now, I'm going to stop there because he's going to repeat that phrase a couple times. You might be tempted to think, wait a minute. Is he actually having to say this out loud? Like, people that follow Christ shouldn't bow down to idols, right? Like, isn't that kind of Christianity 101? Like, do we need to go into this? Do we need to spend actually three chapters out of 1 Corinthians 8? talking about idolatry isn't that pretty self-evident like from genesis all the way on aren't we taught people that follow the one true god don't bow before idols <laughs> i don't have to know my bible very much to know that much well that's true and he will actually say that really boldly in in chapter 10 look dear friends flee idolatry right get away from it so that is true that's true but i want you to understand why um the corinthians we're going to have a hard time with this, with this issue of idolatry, okay? Number one on that is that for the Corinthians in their culture to share meals at local temples was just so much a part of the Corinthian culture. Like, here's what I'm saying. Every celebration that you had happened at one of these temple restaurant cafes so you'd have the temple and then kind of out back there'd be this eating area using a lot of the food that had been brought into the temple so those places those those kind of restaurants were everything in the Corinthian culture in fact if you were going to have a birthday celebration if you're going to have a wedding if there was going to be a funeral look we've got Thanksgiving coming up your Thanksgiving feast 
all of that would have taken place in all these, and like on every corner, these little restaurant kind of things that are all connected to a cult, all connected to this pagan worship center. So it wasn't just what was going on in the temple part. It was just part of the whole culture. So to avoid temples, to avoid eating together with your friends or family at these temple restaurants was actually to cut yourself off from all of your friends, family, and every kind of celebration that there would be, okay? It would be a big deal, a really hard deal to just, it's not like, let's just decide we're never going to go to McDonald's again when you've got scores of other choices out there. No, no, no. It's to say no to eating that kind of meat or in those kind of places was to basically cut yourself off from any kind of social interaction you were going to have as you had always known it growing up. The second thing that makes it tough for the Corinthians and why he's got to write this chapter is because different Christians within the Corinthian church thought very differently about how they should respond to those meals and to this, the going into those temples for those meals. They thought very differently than each other. And so how are we going to help them kind of see eye to eye? That's why he's got to take so much time to explain this, right? How is the Apostle Paul going to help the Corinthian church to experience Taronga? <laughs> like a, a, a place that really Jesus would describe as, as the kind of place the church ought to be. Okay, so here's what he's going to do. The first point is he's just going to introduce love and knowledge. Love and knowledge. Okay, so look at the first few verses of chapter 8. Now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. (laughs) But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Okay, He's going to introduce these ideas of love and knowledge. And I would just want you to know right off the bat, Paul is not going to pit love against knowledge. It's don't get the idea that there's some kind of binary choice here. I'm either a love person or a knowledge person. He's not going to pit love and knowledge against each other at all. But generally, he's going to tell us something that we already know to be true, but it's going to be worth restating. Knowledge alone, if left alone, unbridled by any other virtue, knowledge all by itself tends to puff people up. If you're just going to chase knowledge and knowledge alone, unbridled by love, it's going to puff you up, right? We know what that's like because we live in a university town where there's these like ivory towers of knowledge where people that love to climb that tower and maybe only be with a few other elite people that have your kind of knowledge, and you just kind of look out of your tower on all those little plebs out there, all those little people out there that really don't know what they're talking about, and there's a smugness and an elitism that happens, right? In fact, not only does the ivory tower become a metaphor, right? When you're in a university town, there really are ivory towers. Right? There really are these buildings that get erected up that people kind of look down on the masses and like, come on, right? So what we, we know this experience that, that knowledge tends to puff up and make you feel like you're elite and kind of above everybody else. The Bible really wants to speak strongly into that idea, that concept of knowledge unbridled by love. Guys, Anybody that actually has some level of knowledge should know more than anybody else that they don't have perfect 
knowledge. That they only know partially. That, that's what Paul is saying there. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he actually doesn't yet know it as he ought to know it. People that have real knowledge, the kind of knowledge that the Bible is commending here, understand that even though I know a whole lot and maybe more than the other people around me, I recognize from this vantage point how much I don't yet know, right? That's what true knowledge is supposed to bring us. I found a great example of this in Johannes Kepler. Okay, so unless you're into astronomy or the hard sciences, maybe you're not into Kepler or whatever. It's not like I'm Mr. Astronomer guy, but I really value astronomy. I love what astronomers teach me about stuff because I love outdoors. I love looking at the sky, right? And so Johannes Kepler is one of those guys who is brilliant in 17th century astronomer. Like we're still standing on the shoulders of what he brought into astronomy, how he had to counter what would have been knowledge in his day, countered it, and brought us so much knowledge. But he also was a guy who had knowledge and loved God. And so he really became an example, I think a positive example of what Paul is trying to say here. Here's one of the quotes that he has. Listen to Kepler. Says, he's, just imagine him looking out at the stars as he's saying this, okay? The diversity of the phenomena of nature is so great and the treasures hidden in the heavens so rich precisely in order that the human mind shall never be lacking in fresh nourishment. <laughs> I love that. He's like, I, this, this is the guy, understand, that probably was the smartest guy on the planet when it came to those stars. Okay? Like almost objectively, I think he knew more about what he was looking at than anybody else on the planet at that point. And he's saying, the more I stare at those stars, the more I realize, man, there's so much more to learn. It's always nourishing my knowledge by wanting to feed me more and go further and further. Why? Because his knowledge was also coupled with a love for God. He actually loved the fact that he was known by God more than what he knew about God or anything else, right? That's what he's saying in that, in that uh, last verse of that little section there. He rejoiced more in knowing the God that put all those stars up there than he did about what he knew reciprocally from that God of all the stars, right? And so that's, that is kind of love and knowledge, I don't know, defined the way that Paul believes that we should have knowledge and love defined. So now he's going to go on, starting in verse 4, to our second point, and where he's going to be leading us, that knowledge, guys, is not to be disdained. No, no, no. Knowledge is actually powerful and it's freeing. So look what he says about knowledge here in verse 4. Now, about eat, eating food, sacrifice to idols. By the way, every time he, he's repeating that, he just said that in verse 1. But the reason he's doing that is because it's like he got a letter. I, I know he did. He got a letter from the Corinthians. And this is like all these bullet points of things they've been asking him about, right? So, okay, now about, okay, you've been asking me about food, sacrifice to idols. So he's saying, okay, I'm on that point still. I'm answering your question. About food, sacrifice to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods, many lords, like look around, Corinth, <laughs> on every street corner, there's these little gods, these little lords, right? Yet for us, verse 6, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, 
and we exist through him. He's saying, guys, see all these loads of temples and idols all around this city? They're all vying for your attention. Guys, we know, that's what he's saying, we know something really powerful and it's really freeing. We know that it's just stone. It's just rock. It's just wood. They're, they're actually just inanimate objects that we made. We actually made that stuff. Remember, remember the time that Bob went and knocked that one idol accidentally over and we had to pick it back up and he had a bunch of cracks. And we had to, see, remember the plaster we had to shove in those cracks, right? Because we, we actually made that thing, right? He, he's like, you know that that's true. If you want a great text, not, not today, we don't have time, but go back to Isaiah 44 because in Isaiah 44, he, he, he does a masterful job of talking about iron workers and wood workers and like the, the guy that works with wood, he goes and cuts down a tree and, and part of it, he cuts off a couple limbs, he builds a fire and he starts cooking his, his dinner on it. And then some of the other wood from that exact same tree, he breaks off, carves it into an idol, sets it up on his mantle and says, oh, save me, save me, you know, and, and the prophet Isaiah is saying, it's the same thing. You could take that off and burn it to cook your dinner or make it into an idol you're going to bow before. What? Right? So he's saying, knowing what's true about these idols is actually freeing. It's, it's powerful. We know that that's what's true about those idols. And we also know there is one God the creator of all things. And he doesn't live in, in shrines that we make with our own hands, like, like when Paul went to Athens in Acts 17, same kind of thing. He doesn't live in these little shrines that we build. In fact, he's the one that gives us life and breath and everything else. We don't feed him. He feeds us, as it, as it turns out. And he's come into this world not as some inanimate object, that we could fashion with our hands. Because we're about to celebrate Advent. We're about to celebrate Christmas. We celebrate that God became flesh and dwelt among us. When, when God came down to this earth, he didn't come as some statue, right? It wasn't like Jesus, you know, <laughs> going around, you know, like in some wooden stone statue. No, no, no. He came, he had flesh and blood, and he spoke with us, and he talked with us, and he fed us, and he, Right? That's what we know to be true about the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent in flesh and in blood. But here's the thing. So knowing that truth, it's powerful and it's freeing. And, and so what, what Paul's trying to say to these Corinthian believers, guys, you don't have to be afraid of Poseidon before you jump in your boat and, and go across that little strait of the sea to get over to Athens. There is no Poseidon. It's okay. Go with courage. You don't have to worry, did I, did I make Poseidon mad because I didn't go to his temple and eat from his cafe last week? So is he going to whip up a storm? Oh, no. No, you don't have to worry about that. It's not true. You, it's freeing, right? I don't have to worry about Aphrodite casting her spell on me and pulling me into this licentiousness and this sexual immorality because actually, no, no, no. There is no such thing as Aphrodite. We made that up because we wanted to do the stuff that we actually put in her mind. No, that we made that up. And I don't have to say yes to that anymore. She can't cast her spell on me. No, it's not true. 
I don't have to be afraid that Apollo is maybe not going to allow me to grow a crop big enough for my family to eat from if I don't go and eat at his temple. Why? Because he doesn't exist. It's not true. And it's freeing for me. It's, it takes away those fears. It takes away those hauntings that I've had in my life, right? And, and even to us today, guys, I don't know how many of you still have your own kind of version of this. Some of you that still kind of look to the horoscope every now and then. I mean, I know it's not true, but maybe it is. Maybe there's a little something, you know. Some of you that have a good luck charm or, or, or wear one of those St. Christopher Protectus medallions or hang it in your car or whatever because you just think, I, I mean, I know it's not, but yeah, maybe there's something, right? Or when you're going to see a football game and you decide you need to rub Niall Kinnick's helmet, you know, before you get in, just in case, you know, you don't know, it might, you know, whatever. What I'm saying is we do some of that same kind of stuff in our culture where we really think there's some kind of power. Here's what he's trying to say. Guys, there is one God and there's one Savior, Jesus Christ. And when I know that and embrace that, it is powerful and it is freeing. But here is what he's about to take us to. Guys, but knowing what is true only takes us part way to what he really wants us to embrace. It's powerful. It's freeing. Grab onto knowledge, but it only takes us part way. So now, what he's going to tell us now is knowledge led by love is actually the better way. Knowledge led by love is the better way. So look at verse 7 with me, okay? Verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. See, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Look, here's what we know. We know this. Food won't bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat. We are not better off if we do eat. We know that, okay? But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. So so if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, okay, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, okay, the brother or sister for whom Christ died is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you're sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I'll never eat meat again, so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Guys, um, if you spent your whole life growing up in Corinth and believed that every time you got in your boat to go out as a fisherman, let's say you're a fisherman, you, get, you get, go out, to, to, you got to feed your family, and you got to take extra fish to the market, and if you grew up fearing every time that there was a storm that somehow you had done something to hurt Poseidon or when there was a really good day that somehow it was because you had gone to the right market and eaten at his temple or whatever. What would go on in your mind even as a Christian Corinthian the next time you were out on the sea and a storm whipped up out of nowhere? Right? What would go on in your mind? Even if you know, now you're a Christian, and now you know that that stuff isn't true, what would go on instinctively in your mind the next time a storm whipped up and you're out at sea, right? Because sometimes, guys, there's a lapse between what we know and what we feel. 
and our instincts and the way we kind of operate because that operating system has been going so long. It takes a while to go from what we know to be true to the way we ought to live that out and, and the instincts of our response. Okay, so now what if you are, you're walking down Corinthian Boulevard and you look over into the Poseidon uh, restaurant there, the cafe, and you're walking there, and it already kind of weirds you out because you remember how much devotion you had to Poseidon, how much that kind of tyrannized your life, right? So you're already kind of weirded out, and you're kind of glancing over, but then you glance over, and you're like, dude, is that my pastor eating at the Poseidon Cafe, right? That guy that you know knows more truth than you know, and, and, and you're staring over, and you're like, is that, I think that's my pastor eating in there. And he, all of a sudden, you know, has a bite of fish in his mouth, and he looks over, and he sees you staring at him like this, right? Because you got that deer in the headlights look like, does he not know where he is? What is going on, right? And so he's like, dude, Nick, come on in, man. This is great. The fish they've got today is so good. In fact, they put a little Cajun seasoning on it, right? I mean, Cajun hadn't been invented yet, but let's just pretend. Get a little Cajun seasoning on it. This is the best fish, right? And so he's, he's trying to pull you in, right? And, and you're like, oh, he doesn't get it. So you go over to your pastor. Nick goes over to the pastor and he says, Pastor, these people are here to honor Poseidon. This is a temple cafe, right? You think he, certainly he doesn't know this. But what if the pastor says, Nick, Look, you know that. I know that. But dude, there's nothing to it. It's just fish. In fact, it's some of the best fish I've had. So just sit down, pray to Jesus, thank him for it, and just pound it down. It's so good, right? If Nick in that moment, in like just a freak out moment, darts out of the temple cafe, right? Busts out of the Poseidon cafe, Who is wrong in that moment? Is it Nick because he actually needs to grow up in his knowledge? Is that who's at fault? Or is it a pastor because he hasn't loved Nick well? And the answer is obvious. It's the pastor. It's the guy who's supposed to have more knowledge, right? Because here's the deal. Yes, Nick needs a stronger conscience, okay? That knowledge has to go from up here to kind of bleed out in all of his instincts and all the ways that he thinks, and he needs to train his conscience to catch up with what he knows to be true. That's true. Nick needs that. But right now, he needs it to be brought to him lovingly, okay? You, you need to be... Here's the thing. Later, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 13. And in 1 Corinthians 13, that defines what love is, we know for sure that love rejoices with the truth. That's in 1 Corinthians 13. But you know what the headliner descriptions of love is? Love is patient. Love is kind. Down the list, love also rejoices with the truth. And that is certainly true, okay? But it comes to us out of patience and kindness and love, right? Okay, here's my question. What are we to learn from 1 Corinthians 8 and the cultural moment they're having and how Paul's trying to bring them up, why are we still supposed to be reading this in 2020 in Iowa? What's there to learn from this that can help us out? The first thing I want to say, guys, is knowledge matters. It really matters. Don't you dare use 1 Corinthians 8 to somehow say it's all about love and knowledge doesn't matter. Because that's not the message we're getting from this. And so if, 
if you're somebody that's saying, I know the Bible, I know this stuff, and so you actually don't read your Bible and you don't try to grow in your knowledge, I'm saying, that's wrong. And certainly don't use 1 Corinthians 8 to vaunt yourself up in that. Because you know what? People that really know this book a lot, here's what they say. There is so much more I don't yet know. I have so much further to go. In fact, the more I know, the more I want to know. And what I'm really glad is the one that authored this book actually knows me, and now I get to know him. But man, his knowledge of me versus my knowledge of him, there's a big chasm there. I got a long way to go. I want to know more. I want to know more. So knowledge matters. It is freeing. It is powerful. You need to grow in your knowledge, okay? Don't use this book, this chapter, as an excuse to not value knowledge. That would be a terrible and, and uh, kind of vandalizing way to look at 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge matters. But guys, secondly, people matter. Knowledge all by itself, yeah, it matters, but only when coupled with the second part. People matter. Jesus gave his life for that brother, like Nick, who Jesus gave his life for Nick when he was still a pagan. Before he actually even knew Jesus, Jesus knew him. And he loved him and drew him to himself, knowing how weak he was, knowing how his conscience was going to take a long time to form and all that. And Jesus loved him right where he was at, right? That's how we are supposed to love. People matter. So in our day, there's a lot of cultural confusion. Corinth actually didn't have a... a, corner on the market of cultural confusion. We've got people think very strongly about a lot of cultural moments that we've got going on right now, right? In fact, I'm looking into the eyes, and I can't look into your eyes. You're looking into my eyes if you're online, but we're looking at people who probably think they know a lot about this last election. In fact, if the other people around me just knew what I knew, and then there's this pandemic, Oh, what the people think around me. If they just knew what I knew, right? And we want to puff ourselves up as if we believe that we have some handle on a higher level of knowledge that the rest of these people, if they just, if I could just get them to read this next thing or watch this next thing or understand as I understand Man, that would solve all the problems in the world. And I am telling you, um, guys, um, we get puffed up. We get pretty smug. And we use our knowledge more like a weapon that has an opportunity to build up. And then we roll our eyes and we lash out at people that we think don't have what we have. I remember, it wasn't long ago, guys, I was having a conversation with somebody that didn't think I quite understood what they were trying to say, and I kept saying, oh, I understand exactly what you're saying, I disagree, <laughs> right? But that didn't go over very well, and so finally, this, this, this person said, oh, Jeff, you have your head so far up in the clouds, <laughs> but they didn't say in the clouds. Uh, and I stood there, and I was just like, I mean, just to like, Wham! Just, you know, like being attacked with what they believe to be their knowledge. Here's what I'm saying, guys. Are you tired of just getting beaten by the knowledge of everybody around? (laughs) Are you as equally tired of beating other people up 
with the knowledge you have? Guys, I think there's a lot of people that want to experience Teranga. <laughs> Is there really a place where love actually leads out on knowledge? Is there a place out there that, that I can actually, even for a moment, escape the division and the hostility? Can I step into a place where all of a sudden I feel safe and I feel family? Where knowledge and truth actually mean a lot. In fact, I'm going to be urged toward more knowledge, but it's going to be in a place where there's love, it sounds like the kind of place I want to be. It sounds like the kind of place Jesus was trying to describe when he described that city on a hill. That in the darkness of all this clamor, I see it and I'm like a gravitational pull. I find myself just wanting to be in the safety of that place right there. Guys, wouldn't that be great if that was this church in this cultural moment? So Paul's trying to get the Corinthian church to be. Wouldn't that be great if Veritas Church could be that kind of place that glorified our Father in heaven? Man, I want that so bad. <laughs> and I think you do too. So let's, let's pray this out together. All right, will you stand with me as we cry out to our God uh, to help us believe this stuff and to live this stuff out to his glory. Let's pray. So Jesus, what you find as you look down from heaven is a group gathered here and in the homes of very imperfect people. A people, Lord, that honestly we could even open a text like this and begin to only be judgmental of how immature and how who were these people that still bowed to idols? And Lord, in doing so, kind of miss exactly what you're trying to say to us right here, right now. So Jesus, what we're saying is, um, would you take the power of this word and bring it into our lives? And would it be true that you transform your church, Veritas Church, into being that city on a hill. That when people hear about it, the way that I heard about that idea in Senegal, that people would instinctively say, man, I, could I go there? I, wanna, I just want a taste of that. Lord, lead us to truth. Help us to confess strongly. You are the only one true God. You have sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Awaken us to the truth and, and let it be fueled by love. That's our prayer. In Christ's name.